The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to the program. A positive day for US markets with the S&P posting gains for the fifth day in a row, boosted by earnings that helping the Asian session with equities broadly higher. Netflix says Squid Games has become the biggest TV show ever as the streaming giant tops third quarter earnings forecasts, but shares dip in extended trade. The first Bitcoin futures ETF gains on its trading debut as the spot price also jumps, pushing the cryptocurrency towards fresh all-time highs. Gucci misses forecasts as third quarter sales growth slows, hit by a resurgence in COVID cases in its key Asian market. But the caring groups like-for-like sales jumped 12%, topping expectations. So very good morning, Karen. Um, I had a terrific interview with Dame Kate Bingham, who was responsible for the vaccine program here in the UK back in the early days of uh, the COVID crisis. And that was fascinating. And we're going to play some clips of it here. But what was most interesting for me in the context of the Roche earnings that are coming through at the moment is that she now has record funding coming into the three key healthcare private equity funds that they run. And the healthcare sector is on fire at the moment, it seems to me. It's funny, isn't it? Because before the COVID crisis, private equity was stepping up its commitment anyway to funding pharma development. But uh, you saw a bit of a gap in the market from other sources. But now I think we've seen a, a truckload of money, a wave of money go back into research and development, given what's played out with COVID. So, Roche giving us third quarter numbers. The outlook is raised uh, as far as the company is concerned. That's the announcement. Group sales up uh, uh, 8% at constant exchange rates, 6% in Swiss francs. Uh, Sales in Europe up 3%. Uh, Sales growth of new medicines um, uh, strong. The uh, diagnostic division sales grow 18% in the third quarter and 39% in the first nine months, and that due to high demand for its COVID-19 tests, a strong recovery in the base business, and a newly launched diagnostics platform. All headline stories here from Roche. Um, Let's see if I can find you a fly in the ointment. There aren't many, to be honest, but in the US, sales declined by 5% over the first nine months with stable year-on-year sales uh, since the summer. And that's been, I think, one of the issues for the healthcare companies is just that business was suspended or frozen uh, around the time uh, that uh, COVID first reared its ugly head. And that meant that there was a 
problem with uh, clinicians operating. There was a problem with operations taking place. And there was also, I think, uh, a broad slowdown in uh, the pharmaceutical uh, side of dispensing drugs and um, uh, restocking drugs. So wouldn't be surprised if that decline is a reflection, perhaps, of some of the uh, choppiness uh, in terms of the impact to supply chains. Roche uh, says uh, uh, core earnings per share are targeted to grow broadly in line with sales at constant exchange rates in 2021, uh, mid-single-digit range at constant exchange rates. Uh, Previously, they'd said in the low to mid-single-digit range. So uh, therein lies some detail in terms of the uplift on the forecast. The group says they expect to increase their dividend in Swiss francs further. And I think if you look at the share price performance, um, if we even pull up a shorter-term chart, this is a five-year chart, but more recently, I think you can see how the market has already moved effectively to price in what it sees as a positive environment for this business and its new drug pipeline. So how many sticks have you put up your nose this week and at the back of your throat? Because uh, Are we talking about COVID testing or is this something else? <laughs> we are talking about COVID oh, testing. Oh, COVID testing. Oh, okay. How many are you at for uh, I think I'm I'm good for about three this week. Three so far. So I'm far. at two, but I will go two. for my third today. Well, there will be another one, so that'll take right. me up to four. To four. Which so explains... you're going to have to try harder if you want to catch me. <laughs> so seven between us, and this goes to the commentary of Roche. I mean, they're talking yes. about the demand for COVID tests remains high because of the Delta variant. And we were talking on the channel this week about the potential for another variant as well. And I think that uh, very much demonstrates what's happening here. Mm. It might be life as per normal, but there are a lot of COVID tests being conducted mm. at, the, at home, in clinics, in workplaces. It's uh, a very strong part of society these days. Yeah, and they're going to be a lot more, aren't they? We were just chatting off air about, what did we see, 49,000 cases mm. here in the UK and this Quality. new strategy. Is it a new strategy? I don't know where the government basically is hands off and leaving the schools to deal with it themselves and has pretty much said, well, as long as people are not being hospitalised, we'll just let this thing rip. And of course, uh, as I was hearing on the way in this morning, there's still a lot of places like Moscow, for example, where there's still a relatively low number of vaccines delivered just because there is still this resistance in a lot of countries to taking the vaccines at this stage. So I guess this is going to be around a lot longer. Yeah, I think even with vaccines, there's still a role for testing, right? And we've seen it very much through the lens of the UK, where it is life as usual now. You do They rip off the mask and there's not a lot of precautions taken. But with very high caseload, people are naturally concerned about those interactions. And if you have to be somewhere, that means you need a test. If you're bringing vulnerable family members into the house, you need a test. If there's a sniffle in the house, you're probably more likely to test these days too. Yeah, at least one thing that's improving, I think, is now there's the the new test, I think, where you don't have to stick the uh, thing up your nose. I think you just do the back of the throat. Yeah, I think they've adjusted the lateral flow test, or at least the newer ones. Right. You don't have to do the up the nose. But somehow we seem to have the old stock, I think. <laughs> yes, I've been, I've been uh, trying that out for the last 24 hours uh, fairly unsuccessfully. Lucky you. <laughs> Joys of being a parent, eh? Can't wait till 9 o'clock this morning for another one. <laughs> uh, what we've got on markets, let's just take a look, because uh, there's been a string of different events. And uh, while we may be talking about COVID, I think the market's still very much fixated on this inflation story. And we saw it play out on the Treasury markets yesterday and also in equity. 
equities. And it's quite strange, despite some of the concerns about inflation sticking around for much longer than anticipated and what that could do to central bank policy when it comes to interest rates, technology stocks are not being harmed at this point. And we've had somewhat of a rally unfold in big tech names. Again, on the Nasdaq yesterday, seven tenths of a percent plus, a catalyst to propel the S&P 500 into the green as well. And the Dow, you could see, showing close to 200 point add, a very positive session across the board. And slight mixed too. Don't forget a day earlier, it was consumer discretionary where you saw some appetite. That was the laggard yesterday. But healthcare stocks are back in favour. And in the States, are lots of conversations too about boosters to the COVID-19 vaccine. And let's take a look at Treasury markets. A bit of a tug of war playing out between the short and long end of the curve. We're still marching north on that uh, short end. 1.65 is where we're trading and 0.39 in the short end. So the market just repositioning a little bit around what they think might have been an overactive market around the short end, uh, but uh, less so at the long end. So uh, that uh, yield just nudging a little bit further north. But again, as I pointed out, very unusual that technology stocks uh, were not impacted by any change of thought around our higher rate environment potentially in future. The dollar. Uh, this is how the dollar is reacting to that uh, slightly higher yield. You can see it's not making any gains. Morning session, sterling has marched higher by about a tenth firmer level on the euro. We're up uh, just over a tenth of a percent. Dollar is stable to firmer versus the Japanese yen and also against the yuan in China. And speaking of China, we did see a stable house prices. It's not usually the case in China where there's been for many years an escalation month over month, but we are seeing some caution there. And the Evergrande crisis uh, has played out. That's impacted sentiment around house prices and it's stretched, of course, to other property developers too. So that's been a big one for the Chinese markets that are on the flat line today versus uh, much stronger gains elsewhere. Australia back in action showing some uh, decent gains today. Hong Kong still leading the charge, 1.3 to the upside and about two tenths, a very modest amount on the Japanese stock market today. The opening calls after what was a mostly positive session yesterday, we saw the uh, stock strip 600 gaining about a third of a percent, matched off uh, with gains in Germany and the UK against losses, a slight tilt south in the French market. That was a little bit disappointing and you can see how the signals are shaping up for the morning session. I didn't think I'd start out my morning standing next to the Bridgerton cast, but uh, here we are. I don't know if I'm quite dressed for the moment uh, as we talk about a historical drama, but uh, I'm sure many of you have watched it, uh, very captivating television, and it's not the only one for Netflix, and I think that's what the market has been closely eyeing, the content. Shares in Netflix are trading lower in after hours after the streaming giant met third quarter of revenue forecasts and posted a beat in earnings and new subscriber numbers. Netflix says it expects to add another 8.5 million subscribers in the coming quarter as it prepares to release a deluge of content that was delayed by the pandemic before the end of the year. Now, it will then return to a more normal release schedule next year. That's the prediction anyway. And here are some of the numbers that we saw across for the company and some of the predictions for Q4. Let's get to Dan Thomas, Senior Analyst at Third Bridge Capital. Dan, nice to have you on the show. Let me ask you about the subscriber numbers because they have been very patchy from the height of the pandemic to the other side of that for Netflix. What did you make of the connection now between the content coming to the streaming service and the amount of subscribers added by Netflix. Good morning, guys. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Q4 guidance for F8.5 million net ads, that really does reflect the heavy content slate going into the end of the year. In terms of what we saw 
by way of Q3 net ads, 4.4 million against a consensus of, of around 3.7, 3.8 million is still obviously a, a very good performance. I think we were a little bit light in terms of the United States and Canada. We saw net ads of 73,000. I think people were expecting a little bit more. Um, same story in, in Latam. But that sort of relative underperformance was more than handsomely offset by, by growth in APAC, uh, 2.18 million and in, in EMEA as well. And I think overall that, that paints a, a really good picture, as you say, of, of the content driving engagement uh, amongst users. And I think there's a really good story emerging in Asia, par partly off the back of, of Squid Game and partly off the back of extended content investment in, in the region as well. Um, I would be, be looking to to Q4 and hoping to see some, some bigger numbers from, from the US and Canada in particular, uh, where we're still sort of behind the closing Q1 2021 uh, subsequent that we saw set at the, uh, at the start of the year. Uh, Dan, fairly gushing commentary about the, the lineup coming, about all of this new content that the audience will enjoy. But it also tells us about the cost of doing business, doesn't it? That uh, Netflixers are very much on the hook for having to produce something new and original quarter after quarter. Are they capable of doing that? It is, and it's a core part of the business. And I think if you look at the, the kind of the fundamentals from a content investment perspective, the economics continue to improve sort of year over year. I think if you look back at, at 2019, over the nine months to, to September 30th, uh, 2019, the company spent about two thirds of, of revenue on content. And actually over the same period this year, that was 54%. And I think also the, the frequency with which Netflix is, is creating hits is also improving considerably. Um, take the company's performance of the, the most recent Emmys. I think they scooped up about 44 uh, awards and the, the next closest streaming platform was HBO with, with 19. So I think their ability to, to consistently deliver high quality content is, is something that's getting better. And, and in particular, I think Squid Game underscores that and actually underscores the, the structural advantage they have in terms of the, the much broader subscriber base than their peers, because they can take a relatively um, obscure, innocuous piece of content, um, a local language kind of Korean program and turn it into a, 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 an international hit because they can distribute it simultaneously to hundreds of millions of people around the globe. And I think from a production cost perspective, it was you know, something in the region of, of 20, 20 million in terms of the cost and actually on a, on a value basis, the company are talking about it creating more than $900 million in value. So that, that's a, an idea of the, the really attractive return on investment that's starting to come through on the content spend. Uh, Dan, should I worry about the free cash flow numbers? Um, there is, I think there are some, some, some kind of drivers to that. Obviously, the share repurchase program um, has been ongoing for the last couple of quarters. And I think maybe the, the miss around the, the US in terms of the numbers perhaps we'd expect to see there and the richer average revenue per membership that those subscribers are paying may have contributed to that as well. But I think if you look at it over a longer term, the, the company continues to trend towards free cash flow break even and to be self-funding from a you know an operational perspective. And then I think once that happens, that's a, a catalyst for a, a real change in the, in the narrative around the company. And Dan, um, what about the rivals? Um, there are more and more streaming services. Disney seems to be coming on strong at the moment. Um, what is the risk from uh, disruption for, for, for new subscribers from these new competitors? I think from the specialists that, that we speak to frequently at Third Bridge, they, they're really identifying Netflix as the, the sort of anchor 
product within consumers' broader streaming repertoire. I don't think it's it's appropriate to view streaming as a zero-sum game. I think it can sustain a number of very large competitors, of, net, of which Netflix is probably going to be the biggest. And that's that's something you're seeing borne out in terms of the, the churn as well. So, so Netflix taking taking data from providers like Antenna, it, it seems to have the, the lowest churn or the best retention amongst its peer group, somewhere between two and three percent, with Hulu in, in the region of four percent and its rivals much kind of much higher than that. So I think from a competitive perspective, Netflix is, is dealing well with the competition and the consumer appears to be very happy to have multiple streaming providers. Dan, just bear with us a moment. I just want to bingo call the Nestle numbers, which have just come through and bear with us. And then we'll come back to you with some more questions here. Nestle says nine month sales, 63.3 billion Swiss francs is against the 62.9 Swiss franc average forecast in the poll. That is uh, better than on the top line. Nine month organic growth, 7.6% against the average of 6.6 forecast uh, for the company compiled poll. Uh, Nestle is raising its guidance, therefore, uh, to 6 to 7% organic sales growth in 2021. And that is impressive. Let's face it, a lot of these companies in the fast-moving consumer goods space have been running on 2 to 3 to 4% organic sales growth forever. And here we are looking at Nestle lifting its guidance to 6 to 7%. Um, the group says uh, organic third quarter sales growth came in at 6.5%. Nestle still expecting a margin of around 17.5% for 2021. I think that pretty much nails it. Just worth pointing out, if you take a look at the share price performance of Nestle, we're up over 8% year to date, which again is not bad for a fast-moving consumer goods company, given that Danone has only given us a little over 2%. And if we look at Unilever, which has a slightly different portfolio set, not so much uh, friskies and dog chow, uh, more cleaning powders, but ultimately uh, Unilever is a negative 15% year-to-date here. So at the moment, I think uh, Nestle will be very happy with the numbers they're delivering this morning. Yeah, no doubt uh, a volume and uh, price mix. Uh, Let's come back to Dan to pick up on Netflix. And actually, we're just talking about Nestle there. And and this is a company that's been very innovative, seizing upon new opportunities. And when it comes to Netflix, it does seem as though they're sitting on this amazing new content, all of these incredible series that they've brought to viewers, but they haven't done much on the gaming side, which we know has been big business for a, a lot of different companies where they're sitting on a franchise they can quickly turn into a game and with a very young audience of millennials you think that would be a prime opportunity when do you think netflix will really go for when it comes to gaming i think it's still very much in in the early stages they, they were they were speaking yesterday on a call it's it's very much exploratory learning about how the, the the market works and how consumers engage with the content but absolutely from a an intellectual property perspective they're developing some some really strong franchises that would lend themselves well to other mediums of, of content and entertainment i think um, when you've got a subscriber base there's you know 200 million plus coming to you to to be entertained it's it's a, a a nice strategic move or a sensible strategic move to start providing them with alternative forms of, of entertainment and content. I think it's it's a, a smart move that will drive stronger engagement on the overall platform and with the with, with the franchises that Netflix has. But it's going to be, I think, a number of a number of years before that starts to have a meaningful impact on the, the economics. 
And Dan, just a, a final one around uh, the execution and local markets, because I know there's been a fierce competition at play from some of the local broadcasters uh, right across Europe in particular, but in other markets too, to fend off that challenge from Netflix by going even deeper into home markets and sometimes not uh, English-spoken content either. What do you make of uh, Netflix's ability to compete with very slim uh, level of programmers and content producers in some of these countries that are not home markets for it? I think, I think it's really interesting, and, and Squid Game does perhaps underscore that that trend of Netflix being able to go into local markets and pick up content that, that travels very well. I think a, a number of years ago, you'd probably have been thinking about the return on that content spend specifically through the lens of just your, your Korean audience. But actually what Squid Game has, has shown is that Netflix can look at the, the 200 million global subscribers as a potential audience for that piece of local content. I think Squid Game... Um, you know, Money Heist, uh, Lupin, that's all started to educate the, the user in terms of international content. And it seems like the user is is happier to consume content now, be that through, um, you know, dubbed um, dubbed audio or, or through subtitles. So I think that that bodes very well for Netflix's ability to go in and be very competitive on the content acquisition side of local broadcasters. Dan, good to see you. Thanks for helping us. Dan Thomas, senior analyst at Third Bridge Capital. Coming up, Evergrande reportedly settles an onshore bond payment this week. But problems at the cash-strapped property developer continue. Details when we come back. And for more on how Squid Game has boosted Netflix's subscriber numbers, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Evergrande has reportedly paid an onshore bond coupon due this week, but the embattled property developer still faces several more interest payments as fears over a possible default continue to mount. Our colleague Emily Tan filed this report. It appears that Evergrande is prioritizing its funds towards the domestic market, where analysts say the stakes are higher for the country's financial market. The indebted developer has reportedly made an interest payment on onshore debt that was due yesterday. But that still leaves $5 bond interest payments that remain unaccounted for. The 30-day grace period for the first payment is coming up on Saturday, October the 23rd. So the market will be keeping an eye out as the deadline approaches. Evergrande has been trying to shore up liquidity, but will, with little success. Reports that negotiations to sell a 51% stake in its property services unit have been suspended after failing to receive support from the Guangdong government. Shares in the companies remain suspended pending an announcement of a major transaction. And this comes after U.S. Shield property backed out of a $1.7 billion deal to buy Evergrande's Hong Kong headquarters over worries about complications in completing the transaction. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you.
This week's CNBC Sustainable Future Forum is taking place against the backdrop of spiking global oil, gas and coal prices. A key takeaway from our energy sessions is the pressing need to invest in making renewable energy cheaper. Steve spoke with the Siemens Energy CEO, Christian Brook, and SNAM CEO, Marco Alvira, as part of a panel on green hydrogen. Let's listen in. The capital is there and it's waiting to be invested. What's lacking are the projects that are bankable. So the capital and the investors and the companies are ready to go. What you need to make a project bankable is to have the engineering defined, but to have the revenues defined as well. Now, the revenues of a hydrogen project still depend on some form of either incentive or obligation to have hydrogen. Because the gray is cheaper than the green, if you just say, let's let's do hydrogen, then there is already a $100 billion per year hydrogen market out there. The exception is it's gray. So you need the fine print in the policies to incentivize or make it mandatory to switch from gray to green, to switch from gas to hydrogen, to switch from coal to hydrogen, and, and then it will happen very fast. Christian, would you agree that the capital's there, that technology's up to scratch, we just need better regulation? I think all three of those points are probably debatable. Well, uh, as, as Marco said, I do agree the, the money is waiting there, but there's no commercial case for green hydrogen. I mean, this is uh, one of the problems what also Marco was alluding to by saying it's, it's not bankable yet, which means um, we need to define boundary conditions which make this uh, technology and these cases uh, commercially viable. Uh, and we need an environment, obviously, of cheap electricity and in this regard, abundant renewable energy available to, to do this. Uh, this is not there yet, and it means that certain boundary conditions in the market need to change in a long-term stable base that investors can go into these cases and say, I spent my money on it. If these cases are there, the money availability will not be the problem. And this will also then be needed to build up then the industry behind it. Because also, I mean, at the end, you will need technical systems <clears throat> where you have the long-term reliability experiences. Uh, you know how to operate these systems for 10 or 15 years, because this is what you normally see in the power industry. This is all still to come to make it uh, afterwards a commercial system. So the biggest problem is under the current boundary conditions, there's not yet a commercial case for green hydrogen. And this is why Marco, uh, I believe, was alluding to the fine prints in the regulations. This is exactly what is needed now. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.